0: You'll be able to figure out from the screen that we're looking at 2 Corinthians. And last week we heard that we must place great importance on living faithful lives because we are messengers of a faithful God. That was Paul's message. And we looked last week into a little of the background to this letter. Paul had twice changed his plans with regard to visiting Corinth. Initially, he said he would visit them for a while on his way from Macedonia to Jerusalem. But that didn't happen. Instead, Paul made a short visit to Corinth before going to Macedonia, still intending at that point to come back for the longer visit on his way back from Macedonia. But that longer visit never happened. And as a result, Paul was being accused by at least some in Corinth of being unreliable and unfaithful. He was being accused of making his plans in a worldly manner rather than a godly manner. But in the passage we looked at, Paul insisted he had not been acting in a worldly way. He insisted that his change of plans... Had not been because of unfaithfulness or lack of care for them. And now, in our passage this morning, Paul explains why he changed his plans. He explains his motivation. He says he was acting out of love for the Corinthians. And he also encourages them to act out of love for one another. This morning, we're going to pick up at chapter 1, verse 23. And we'll read through to chapter 2, verse 11. And if you're using a church Bible, that's page 1158. Chapter 1, verse 23. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came I would not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart. And with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. This is God's word. And our passage divides into two main sections. In each section, Paul describes actions motivated by love. First, Paul says that if we are motivated by love, we will work together for joy in the midst of pain. And second, we will be willing to both punish and forgive. So first in chapter 1 verse 23 through to chapter 2 verse 4, if we are motivated by love we will work together for joy in the midst of pain. Remember the Corinthians are put out that Paul hasn't come to them for the long visit he said he was going to make. He did come for a short visit but he didn't come back for the long one. And they think this is a sign of Paul's lack of concern for them. But Paul says in verse 23, it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Yes, I changed my plans, but it was out of love for you, not carelessness about you. And at this point, we can fill in a bit more of the background. It turns out that Paul's short visit to Corinth did not go well. In chapter 2, verse 1, he describes it as a painful visit. It was a rough, unpleasant time. Paul doesn't tell us exactly why it was a painful visit. But clearly the visit either revealed things in the church that needed to be dealt with or something happened during the visit that needed to be dealt with. But then Paul's commitments elsewhere took him away from Corinth quite quickly. And he left them in a state of grief. That word appears eight times in our passage. At least it's the same word in the original. The NIV translates it in a few different ways. Grief, pain, and sorrow. But it's all translating the same word. The background to this passage is one of pain. Paul had planned to come back for a longer visit, but as he thought about the painful visit, he decided to change that plan. He wrote them a letter instead. It's a letter that we don't have today, but it's often known as the tearful letter. Why did Paul choose to write to them instead of visiting them again? Well, he says it was to spare them. And then he gives an explanation. Look again at verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. What does Paul mean in verse 24? Well, We could sum it up by saying there were things the Corinthians needed to sort out. And Paul could have come back with a big stick to do the sorting himself. But Paul trusts the reality of God's work in their lives. So he chose to work with them through a letter rather than coming with his big stick. That's the summary of what Paul says. But look at how he says it. First of all, he says, not that we lord it over your faith. There is a style of church leadership where the leader or leaders operate Consistently, like riot police. They have truncheons, they're not afraid to use them, and they assume they generally need to be using them. That kind of leader consistently views the church body as a hostile crowd. That kind of leader operates on the assumption that members of the church won't do what they ought to do of their own accord, so they need to be whacked into line. That essentially is what Paul is talking about when he mentions lording it over your faith. He's talking about a certain way of viewing the church body and a certain way of dealing with the church body. When it comes to doing what's right, the church body is viewed as a lost cause. The only way to deal with people like that is to whack them into line or whack them in the right direction. The kind of leader assumes that they need to lord it over the faith of the congregation. Because the congregation's faith is hopelessly off track. That was a common approach in Paul's day. It's a common approach today. But Paul says, it's not my way of doing things. Now we need to be clear, Paul still reserved the right to produce his big stick. He knew it is possible for a church body to go hopelessly wild. When it comes to doing the right thing, sometimes church bodies do start a riot against the right thing. Paul knew that. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, he asked them, do you want me to come with a whip? In other words, is the situation really that bad? Do I need to do what Jesus did in the temple? Kick over a few tables and throw a few people out in the street. Paul did not rule out asserting his authority to bring a fellowship in line. But that was not his normal or his preferred way of doing things. It was not his habitual posture. So, what was Paul's habitual posture? What was his standard approach to the church body? What was his standard view of the church body? Well, he explains it in verse 24. Instead of lording it over them, he works with them for their joy. In the vast majority of situations, Paul sees no need of his riot gear. He sees the church body not as a hostile crowd, but as men and women he can work with. And if we ask why he sees them that way, the answer comes at the end of verse 24. It is by faith you stand firm. It's probably better to translate it, you stand firm in the faith. Paul says, I don't need a big stick. I can work with you because you stand firm in the faith. Paul looks at the bad situation in Corinth, but he still has hope. And his hope comes from the belief that these men and women are new men and women. They have new hearts and spirits. Look back just a few verses. Look how Paul describes them in verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. For all the distressing things that he sees in Corinth, Paul still believes these men and women have been made new through faith in Jesus. And so instead of coming with a stick, he chose to give them guidance from a distance. He wrote a letter encouraging them to do the right thing. And then he trusted them to do it. So Paul didn't just abandon his leadership responsibility. But neither did he assume these people were a lost cause. He didn't assume that the stick was the only answer. Paul knew the Old Testament promises about new hearts and spirits. And he believes these promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. So Paul is convinced that the reality of our faith enables us to work together. And in fact, the New Testament as a whole works on the assumption that God's people, for all of their rough edges, for all of their waywardness, still have a fundamental unity. They're united through their faith in Jesus and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The New Testament writers work on the assumption that their readers can be called to do the right thing. Because deep down they want to do the right thing. And that has to be our assumption too. I hope that's the way we as elders view the church body. And when you have differences with a a brother or sister, I hope that you see them not as someone who's on the other side of your riot shield, but as someone who's fundamentally on the same team, who's trusting the same Savior, indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, someone you can work with for joy. There might often be tears on the way to joy, but if we have any confidence in God's power, then we must have confidence in his work in the lives of his people. Even in situations of hurt and misunderstanding and anger, we can work together for joy. Not because we are great people, but because a great God is at work among us. Paul has spoken about working for joy. And now he shows what he means by that. He says, our joy is bound up with one another. Look at verse 2. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul has stayed away from Corinth not to cause pain. But his letter has still caused a certain amount of pain. He was determined not to lord it over them, but in his letter he still had to challenge them about what they needed to do. That was part of working with them. So Paul knows that they are grieved or pained. But he wants them to know that they are also the source of his joy. He takes joy in seeing them doing what's right. Following God. Growing in their faith and obedience. He takes joy in those things because he loves the Corinthians. He hates to cause them pain. Causing them pain causes him pain. He mentions his tears and distress and anguish of heart. Paul hates to cause them pain, but he is willing to cause them pain so that he can rejoice as they respond to his challenge and do the right thing. Paul's joy is bound up with these people. He's not like a manager of a business. That's not how he approaches the church. His heart is tied up with these people. He's distressed when the church is on the wrong track. He's distressed when he has to confront the church. But he's willing to do it so he can have the joy of seeing them go on in the faith. And in verse 3, he says, I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. In other words, he's saying, I believe that you're with me on this. I believe you ultimately want to do the right thing. I believe you will rejoice with me when all this is dealt with in a godly way. Paul is teaching us that our joy is bound up with one another. And the church is not us against them or me against him. At least it shouldn't be that way. And all that we do, we're to work together for joy. Not my joy at the expense of yours, but shared joy. The joy that comes from brothers and sisters learning to forgive one another and obey their Savior. And we're to work together for this joy just as much when we have to challenge one another as when we're able to affirm one another. When we read Paul's letters, it's clear the church was not something that Paul could either take or leave. He wasn't emotionally detached from the church. His heart was in the church. So much so that he experienced both distress and anguish, but also joy through his involvement in the church. That's clear from his letters as a whole, and it's especially clear in this letter So, the question is Is this the way you and I relate to the church? Are we invested in the church? Does the welfare of the church matter to us? Do we suffer distress or anguish or joy depending on the state of the church? Do we have a deep commitment to work with our fellow church members? Or do we relate to the church in much the same way we do to the supermarket? It's a place we go to get what we're looking for. And it may as well be Asda or Tesco or Sainsbury's. We might have gone to Asda last week, but if Tesco promises a better shopping experience, we'll go there next week. And if we don't find what we're looking for in aisle number three, Or if the checkout line is a bit slow, we'll not be back. We have no emotional investment in the situation. No real ties to it. At least no ties that are strong enough to hold us there through pain and difficulties. Does that describe your relationship to the church? The church is full of Sinners. There will always be pain involved in the church. Sometimes less, sometimes more. But if we view the church the way Paul does, we will view it with love. We will be emotionally invested in the church. It will matter to us. And we will view our brothers and sisters with confidence. We will have confidence that God is at work in them. And that love and investment and confidence will cause us to work together for joy, even in the midst of pain. Paul has made his general point, and now he gives a specific example. If we're motivated by love, we will be willing to both punish and forgive. Apparently, at least part of the problem in Corinth was an individual. We don't know the details, but it doesn't seem to have been a dispute over doctrine. It was a relational problem. It probably involved some kind of personal attack on Paul. And there may also have been some moral issue involved. Later in the letter, Paul mentions impurity in the church. So it may well be that during the painful visit, Paul challenged some individual about their sin. And he was then publicly attacked by that individual and the church body did nothing. That would have been another reason for Paul to stay away and instead write them a letter. He was personally involved in this and he didn't want the situation to become all about Paul. We can't be sure of the details. But in any case, the situation was serious enough that an individual in the church needed to be disciplined. The church had eventually imposed discipline, probably in response to Paul's letter. But now, the discipline is going on longer than it should. It's time for the discipline to end. And Paul writes to prod the church to bring it to an end. First of all, he reminds them that the aim of discipline is repentance and restoration. Look again at verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. In verse 5, Paul plays down the pain that he personally has suffered from the individual. The sentence is a bit contorted, but that's what Paul is saying. Sure, I was a bit hurt by this guy, But the real pain was caused to the whole church body. His sin caused damage in the fellowship. And so, verse 6, it was right that as a fellowship, you impose discipline on him. Paul has in mind a meeting of the church body where the issue was discussed. And a majority decision put the man under discipline of some kind. So Paul had been right to have confidence in the Corinthians. He stayed away. He trusted them to do the right thing, and they did. But now, apparently, the man has repented. Paul mentions that in chapter 7. So the discipline has achieved its purpose, but it hasn't been lifted. So Paul wants to remind the church of the aim of discipline, repentance and restoration. Where there has been genuine repentance, or at least reasonable signs of it, there needs to be restoration. Otherwise, verse 7, there's a real danger the man will be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When the brother has turned away from his sin, fellowship needs to resume. The repentant brother needs fellowship. Punishment with the aim of bringing repentance is good. But punishment after there has been repentance is just oppressive and destructive. Paul says, forgive and comfort him. And notice how he puts it in verse 8. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The word translated reaffirm is a legal term. We could translate it, ratify. In other words, Paul is not talking about quietly allowing this guy to be around again. He's talking about formally reinstating him. Whatever form membership took in Corinth, this involved welcoming the brother back into full fellowship in the church. If there's good reason to believe God has forgiven this brother, then the brother needs to know the church affirms God's forgiveness. The church needs to make it clear that they forgive him too. Earlier we had a reading from Isaiah. God promised that his servant would not break a bruised reed, nor would he snuff out a smoldering wick. If that's the care God shows to his repentant people, then we must show the same care. How often does this kind of thing happen today? Probably not very often. Church discipline is rare, and people who are willing to submit to church discipline are even more rare. And consequently, the opportunity to formally reaffirm love to a repentant member is also very rare. But it shouldn't be. If we love the church, if we're invested in the church, it won't be rare. Paul is writing to this very specific situation, but he's also showing us how the church is supposed to be. Leaders are not to be lording it over the body. And at the same time, the body is to be responsive, ready and eager to do the right thing, willing to deal with sin, willing, yes, to inflict punishment on the sinner, but always motivated by love, always with the aim of producing repentance that leads to forgiveness and comfort and restoration. That's how the church should be. Not a bunch of disinterested supermarket shoppers, but a family who are deeply invested in the life and the well-being of the church. Men and women who are willing to stick with the church through pain because they want the joy of healing in the church. Maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, this is a great idea, but is this likely to happen? Well, in the final verses, Paul ups the stakes on us. This is not an option. It's not just for those who have the time and the patience for it. This is the way the church has to be. Paul says it has to be this way, because both Christ and Satan are watching. Verse 9 The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. In verse 9, again, we see the balance in Paul's leadership. He didn't show up with his stick to lord it over the Corinthians. He had confidence they would do the right thing. But he also made it very clear to them what the right thing was. They needed to take the sin seriously. And now they need to take the repentance seriously. And here Paul assures them that he also forgives this man. He's still careful to play down the pain he experienced. In verse 10 he says, if there was anything to forgive, clearly there was something to forgive. But Paul isn't going to make a big deal of it. Paul's aim is not getting his own back on this man. He wants this whole thing put to rest. And he makes clear how important putting it to rest is. Christ is watching. Forgiveness is in the sight of Christ. It's his church. The brother under discussion is Christ's brother too. The book of Hebrews says that when Jesus saves people, they become part of his family. And he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We in the church should not be ashamed to do the same. After all, whatever way we treat one another, we're doing it in the sight of Christ. Then in verse 11, Paul gives another reason for forgiveness and restoration in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan loves chaos. He loves bitterness and division. He loves to see sin in the church. And he also loves to see the repentant being punished to the point where they are overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I don't think that Satan has detailed plans. Scripture presents him as an opportunist. His aim is just chaos and destruction in any way that he's able. He'll jump on any chance to make a little bit more chaos and destruction. Paul knows what Satan is like and he warns the church, he's watching. He's looking for an opening. Don't give it to him. Paul was aware of Satan's schemes for chaos and destruction. But I think it's true that most of us are quick to forget that Satan's even around. Never mind looking for an opening in our fellowship. And this doesn't only apply to big things like a case of church discipline. Think how much infighting and bitterness and division could be avoided if we just stopped to ask ourselves, Am I giving Satan an opening here? if I lash out with my tongue like I want to do, if I refuse to forgive, if I behave selfishly here, am I letting Satan outwit me? Am I opening the door for his chaos and destruction? We don't tend to think like that, but we must. Satan will take advantage of the opportunities we give him. Let's remember that the next time our pride prompts us to take a pot shot at someone else, or refuse to forgive someone. There may even be people in this room who are not reconciled to one another. If that's true, then open your eyes. Satan is outwitting you. And put it right. Satan is watching. He hates the church. Christ is also watching. And he loves the church. That should be motivation enough for us to work together for joy in the midst of pain. And to be willing to both punish and forgive. We're going to respond to God's word as we sing, Lord of the church, we pray for our renewing. Stand with me, please.